As you're being seated, go ahead and find your Bible. We're going to be in Luke chapter 23 today. You've probably heard the term, the struggle is real. Uh, The struggle is real. It's become a, a term that we use to identify with first world problems. You know, problems like, Man, I, w- I would love to follow along in my Bible today, but I forgot to charge my iPad last night. Oh, you know? Or, uh, what do you mean there's no Wi-Fi? I got to use LTE? It's so slow. Or, spring break was great, but now I need a break because it's just been go, go, go all the way through spring break. Or, what do you mean Paul Reed wants me to stand again? I just got seated, or these chairs, they, they squish whenever I sit down on them, or I hope that Lash doesn't preach more than 30 minutes again this week, or I ordered a taquito in the Life Cafe, and it didn't have cheese on it. It was supposed to have cheese on it. Hey, folks, the struggle is real, right? It's real. Now, reality check, and that is that people are people, and one of the things that I've discovered about people is that below the surface... All of us tend to be ducks. All of us have a struggle going on. And so beyond the smile and the hello and everything's good, there's always kind of a little bit of an inward struggle taking place within us. Some of those struggles are self-esteem oriented. Will people accept me if they really know me? Am I loved? Do I, do I have friends? We struggle with the battle between success and significance. I have decisions to make in my life. How do, I, how do I make the right decision? How do I do the right thing? Do I have the courage to do the right thing? Or will I just do what is easy? We struggle with, well, what is the meaning of it? What's the point? Why is it that I have this job? Why is it that I go to school? Why is it that I I try to do good things? We all have this inner struggle that takes place within us. Marcus Pontius Pilate, he was known as a great horseman. He was from the house of Ponti. If you want to be technical about it, his name is actually pronounced Pontius Pilate. He most likely was raised in the mountains of southern Italy in villages that were known for producing great warriors. And this man, Pontius Pilate, he had risen the ranks of the Roman army. He had come to a point where he was named the governor over southern Palestine. So within that region, which also included the holy city of Jerusalem, Pilate spoke with the voice of the emperor. Whenever Pilate spoke, people woke. Now, Pilate's main job was to keep the peace. You see, if you're in the empire business, once you conquer a province and add that province to your empire, then the thing that you want most is tax revenue. And so Pilate's main job was to keep the peace because uprisings, riots, wars, they're bad for business when you're in the empire business. But Pilate, he was more of a warrior than he was a diplomat. diplomat. And so he found himself in hot water with the Roman authorities. His position there in Judea was rather precarious, and 
Under his watch, several riots had occurred, and there were times that he killed a bunch of people. And so the region had become very, very unstable. So the day begins like any other day. The sun comes up. The birds are singing outside. And little did Pilate know that this was actually the day of days. This would be the day that the Son of God would be crucified and he would bring healing to humankind's fractured soul. At midnight, Jesus and the disciples had reached the little garden known as Gethsemane, and there Jesus had prayed beneath the olive branches, asking for God's strength and even asking if there were any other way that God might bring it. Around 1 a.m., Jesus was arrested and taken to the former high priest's house, a man by the name of Annas, where he was then questioned. Between 2 and 5, Jesus stood before the high court of Judaism, the Sanhedrin court, and he was questioned. It was a false trial in every way, and he was ultimately uh, accused of things that he had never done. Probably for about an hour or so, he was held in a chamber, a pit beneath the temple complex, and then at sunrise... He had been brought out and he'd been found guilty of the crime of blasphemy, essentially saying that he was the Son of God. And within Jewish law, blasphemy was punishable by death. But now the Jewish leaders had a problem. They couldn't execute anyone. And so they took Jesus about a half a mile, more than likely, to Fort Antonia, where this man Pilate, the governor from Rome, was presiding. And so that's where we pick up the story in verse, 20, or verse 1 of chapter 23. Then their whole assembly rose up and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man subverting our nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, You have said it. Pilate then told the chief priest and the crowds, I find no grounds for charging this man. But they kept insisting. He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee where he started, even to here. Now notice the change of tactics. At the Jewish trial, Jesus had been formally charged with blasphemy, saying that he is the Son of God. But now, what are they charging Jesus of before Pilate? They're calling him a traitor, someone that opposes paying taxes, claiming to be king. Literally, they had changed Jesus' crime in the half-mile walk from the temple to Fort Antonia. You know, it's amazing how unscrupulous people will change their accusations to fit their audience. You see, when truth is anchored in opinion rather than principle, then truth will change from face to face. Now, there's a lot of reality checks that we're going to see today in this passage. But here's the first reality check that I I want you to grasp, and that is that people do rotten things. In fact, that's the whole point of the cross. We wouldn't need a Savior We wouldn't need Jesus to die on the cross for our sins if we weren't in eternal desperation because of our sin. Everybody in the room has done things that we should not. People in society 
do rotten things. And Jesus lived, died, and rose again because we are sinners in need of a Savior. My name is Lash Banks, and I am a sinner. Everyone say, hi, Lash. Such a welcoming place. I feel like I found a group of support right here. There's no perfect people at Murphy Church. If you met a perfect person here, they must be visiting. Because those of us that are actually here, uh, there's, there's no perfect people here. We're, we're all sinners. But here's the story of Christianity. Christianity believes that we are all sinners who can be saved by grace. And that Jesus Christ can do a work within our heart that changes every part of our life. And so we can come to Christ in sincerity of faith, placing our faith, placing our life in Him, and we can be saved, we can be changed, all things can be made new, and from the inside out, God can begin to do a, begin to do a work that will change your ethic, will change your life, will change how you see the world around you, because God has changed your soul. The ethics of Jesus' accusers testified to their need for a Savior. Now, I believe that Pilate knew who Jesus was and no doubt had heard of him. But now there was a reality check that he was having to deal with. He had heard of who Jesus was, but now Jesus was standing before him. He was now going to have to make a decision about Jesus. And so Pilate's initial reaction is to avoid the conflict. He immediately says, I find no fault in this man. Now, let me ask you guys this question. You can be honest. How many of you would say, I'm kind of a conflict avoider? Just go ahead and look. How many of y'all would say, I'm kind of a conflict avoider? Uh, some of you are like, I would lift my hand, but I'm conflicted about lifting my hand. because then, So I'm just going to avoid lifting my hand because then I'm going to avoid the conflict. I'm going to say something that might actually surprise you a little bit. Uh, conflict avoidance sometimes gets a bad rap. It's like, oh, everything has to be dealt with, everything has to be... Reality is, is that there's a lot of things in life that you don't have to engage. They're just kind of distractions, and you don't have to tackle everything that comes across your path. A couple years ago, I was hiking in the North Cascades, reached the top of a hill and had this beautiful view, and I thought, man, this is a great place to stop and eat. So I brought out my tuna fish. Nothing says hiking like tuna fish, right? So I'm eating my tuna fish, and like this swarm of flies just comes around me. I mean, I'm just swatting them all out, and I'm trying to eat my meal. And, and, and so I, I have to make a decision. Do I kill a million flies, or do I eat my food? You know, that, that kind of, you know which, which one do I do? And so eventually I, I, I just put up my food, and I enjoyed the view. Why? Because the flies were just being a distraction. Sometimes just, just ignore the flies and enjoy the view. But there's another reality check. Sometimes you can't just ignore it. Sometimes there's a conflict. Sometimes there's an issue. Sometimes there's a decision. Sometimes something is right in front of you that you have to deal with. So let's look at what Pilate does. Pilate does what most of us do. He begins trying to find ways to deal with it. And the first thing that he's going to do is he's going to pass the buck. So look at verse 6. When Pilate heard this, he asked if the man was a Galilean. Finding that he was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem during those days. Herod was very glad to see Jesus. For a long time, he had wanted to see him because he had heard about him 
and was hoping to see some miracles performed by him. So Herod's hoping to see Jesus the magician. So he kept asking him questions, but Jesus did not answer. The chief priest and the scribe stood by vehemently accusing him. So you get the scene? Jesus is before Herod. Herod's trying to get him to do miracles. Jesus won't answer. And the crowd, the chief priests, the scribes, they just keep accusing him and accusing him and accusing him. And then Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt, mocked him, dressed him in a brilliant robe, and then sent him back to Pilate. Now that very day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Previously, they had been hostile towards each other. Now Mark's gospel tells us that when Pilate was interviewing Jesus, that Pilate was amazed at Jesus. Now, one of the things you need to know about Pilate is every day he had prisoners come and stand before him. Every single day he had to pronounce judgment. So he had seen it all. He had had people beg for their lives. He, he knew human emotion, and he is amazed at Jesus. Something about Jesus' demeanor struck a chord with Pilate. And you know, serious thinkers have to do something about Jesus. You have to make some decision when it comes to Jesus. Because of all the people in history, Jesus comes onto the scene and he divides time in half. Never sat on a throne, never commanded an army, didn't have great wealth, and yet we literally measure time before Christ and after Christ. No one comes close to Jesus in the shadow that they cast over human history. We know about Jesus' impact on Christianity and faith, but if you study it, uh, think about his impact upon health. I was talking to some folks earlier today. They said, having a baby at Presbyterian Hospital. Why? Because Christians have started hospitals. His impact on medicine, health, education, law, benevolence, art, music, economics, government, civil rights, science. Jesus cast an enormous shadow over history to the degree that we have to do something about Jesus. Anyone who's intellectually honest at any level has to make some decision about Jesus. Pilate had Jesus standing right before him, and now he was forced to make a choice that he didn't want to make. Initially, he tries to punt it to Herod, and now he says, Okay, what do I do now? When it comes to Jesus, no one can make the choice for you. Do you realize that? That Christianity is not something that you inherit from your parents. Students down here, at some point, you've got to make a choice on your own. Look, I'm glad your daddy was a deacon. Seems like everybody I talk to you these days. Yeah, my daddy was a deacon. My granddaddy was a deacon. You know, I'm glad that your mama taught third grade Sunday school at First Baptist Church Timbuktu for 20 years. I'm glad for the heritage that you grew up with. But at some point, each of us have to make our own choice when it comes to Jesus. And so Pilate, he called together the chief priest in verse 13, the leaders and the people, and he said to them, You have brought me this man as one who subverts the people, but in fact, after examining him in your presence, I have found no grounds to charge this man with those things you accuse him of. Neither has Herod, because he sent him back to us. Clearly he has done nothing to deserve death, therefore... I will have him whipped and release him. 
Now, here's what Pilate knew at this point. He knew that Jesus was innocent. So now the struggle had turned inward. Pilate was dealing with a battle within himself. And here was the battle. Do I do the right thing or do I appease the crowd? Now, up to this point, Pilate had tried to avoid the decision. Then he had tried to punt it over to Herod. And now at this point, he tries to compromise. So here's the compromise. I will punish Jesus, and then I'll release him. I'll have him whipped. The Roman scourge would leave Jesus so handicapped, so wounded, that his life would never be the same. And so in Pilate's mind, whipping him would end his ability to travel and be a great teacher, but then he could let him go and let him live his life. But the crowd was bloodthirsty, and they rejected Pilate's compromise. Now imagine Pilate's inner struggle. He knew that Jesus was innocent. He knew that the right thing for him to do was to let Jesus go. But he was too scared to do it. He is protecting his position. And so he was trying to do everything else but the right thing. And so he, he, he has one more plan, one more thing that he can do. Okay, giving it to Herod didn't work. Uh, the compromise didn't work. Avoiding it didn't work. So one more plan. There was a custom at the Passover that the Romans would release one prisoner. So Pilate thinks, and he comes up with a guy that everybody knows is a bad cat. His name's Barabbas. He was an insurrectionist. He'd actually committed murder, and more than likely, it was a public murder so that everybody knew what Barabbas had done. And he brings Barabbas out, he brings Jesus out, and he basically allows the crowd to make a decision. And I think Pilate is thinking, certainly they will choose uh, Jesus, but they all cried out together, take this man away. Release to us Barabbas, verse 16. In verse, the Bible says in verse 19, I should say, he had been thrown into prison for a rebellion that had taken place in the city and for murder. And so Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addresses the crowd again. One more time, Pilate tries to speak his case and get them to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. <laughs> now Pontius Pilate probably thought, I'm doing everything I know to do. I've done it all. I've tried every angle I can try. But there was one thing that he never did. He never did the right thing. Question for you. How do you make a good decision? How do you make a good decision when you're faced with an inner struggle? You've got something big in your life that you're trying to decide what to do. How do you make a wise, godly decision? Let me give you three things that you can do in your life to make wise decisions. If you're a note taker, this is a good time to take a few notes. Number one, ask yourself the question, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Now, you'll be amazed if you read the Bible at how much it speaks about, how much practical stuff in life the Bible speaks to. And so when you're trying to make a decision, the first place you go to is the Word of God. And if the Bible has spoken on it, then your decision is 
very clear. Let's say you're thinking about killing somebody. You know, like exaggerated decision here, okay? Okay, well, the Bible says do not murder. Okay, decision's made for you, all right? You don't need to do that. That's not a good plan, okay? So the first place you need to go is to the Bible and ask yourself, what does the Bible have to say? Now, let me just say this. As a Christian, at some point, you're going to have to make a decision about the Word of God. Do you believe that the Scripture is eternal truth, that it is God's Word, Or do you believe that it is just kind of a Shakespearean-like inspired book? I'll tell you where the church stands on this. We believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, that it is truth without mixture of error, that it is our guide for faith and practice. We believe the Scriptures to be the Holy Spirit-breathed Word of God. And so the first place that we need to go when making big decisions is to ask ourselves the question, well, what does the Bible have to say about this? I find in talking with Christians so often, we we have all these different opinions and perspectives, but we never really ask, okay, what did God say? My dad likes to say it's not about who's right, it's about what's right. Now here's a second question you can ask yourself. Where is the Holy Spirit speaking? I realize there's times where maybe you don't have a clear answer from Scripture and you're still deciding something, or maybe it's something like you're trying to decide on, should I take this job or should I not take this job, or you know, where should I go to college, whatever it might be. Okay, so where is the Holy Spirit speaking in your heart? Pray about your decisions. As Christian people, when we're making big decisions in life, it's not just about let's have a good talk. Or this is what I think. But have you taken the decision to God in prayer and said, God, lead me and guide me and may your Holy Spirit speak to my heart. Now make sure you understand this. The Holy Spirit's not going to lead you in a way that's contrary to the Word of God. Because the Holy Spirit has already spoken through the Word of God. But the Holy Spirit will guide our heart and He will speak to us and He will counsel us and He will give us wisdom so that we can make wise decisions. You see, it's not always about what can I do. Sometimes it's about, well, what's the wise thing to do and what is the Spirit leading me to do? So question one, what does the Bible say? Question two, where is the Holy Spirit speaking? Question three, where is God's glory? When you find yourself struggling about what to do, Ask yourself this question, how can I honor Him? How can I honor God in this decision? How can I honor God and allow Him to direct your path? One of my life verses is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Not just the 80% of your heart that's easy, but the 20% of your heart that is conflicted. Trust in the Lord with those self-image issues. Trust in the Lord with those decisions that you're making. Trust in the Lord with those uh, things from your past. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And do not rely on your own understanding. It's not about, well, this is what I think, this is what I want to do. Do not rely on your own, own understanding, but trust in the Lord. Think about Him in all your ways. This is my responsibility. I'm supposed to trust in the Lord. I'm supposed to bring it all to Him. I'm supposed to not just think about my own understanding but think about God's perspective. I'm supposed to think about Him and honor Him and bring glory to Him. And then the Bible says, and He will guide you. He will guide you on the right paths. He will make your ways straight. There are some big decisions that I know many of us are wrestling with. 
And I know this, that whenever you seek God's wisdom in Scripture, whenever you seek the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, whenever you seek to honor God and bring glory to Him, no matter where He leads you, God will lead you down the paths that are righteous and straight. When verse 22, Pilate's inner struggle reaches a climax. And so a third time he said to them, Why? What has this man done wrong? I, I found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him whipped and then release him. But they kept up the pressure, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified, and their voices won out. So Pilate decided to grant their demand and released the one they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for rebellion and murder, but he handed Jesus over to their will. Verse 23 is one of the most tragic verses in the Bible. And their voices won out. Right didn't win out. Justice didn't win out. Truth didn't win out. Their voices won out. An hour or so earlier... Jesus had stood in Pilate's chamber, and in John 18, Jesus had said to Pilate, now think about the context in which Jesus is saying this, I was born for this. I have come into this world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate had heard those words, and here was his response to Jesus, truth. What is truth? The struggle's real. What is truth? And some here today, you struggle with those inner things like, will they still like me if they know me? Am I loved? Do I have any friends? And the truth is that God knows you. He knows everything about you. He knew you before you were ever born. He knit you together in your mother's womb. You can't hide anything from Him. And the Scriptures say that He still loves us and He wants you to know Him and to walk with Him and to call Him Father. He also wants you to walk with us. You realize that the church is not just humanity's idea, that the church is Jesus' idea? That Jesus didn't make you to live in isolation? In fact, if you think about what is one of the greatest punishments that we can bring to a person... The solitary confinement. Jesus didn't call you. God didn't make you to live all alone. God made you to live in community, and He wants you to walk with a body of believers and to be a part of a community. And as a church, we need to make sure that through these big decisions of life, through the health problems, through the grief, through whatever we face, that we never walk alone, that we're in this together. Amen? Amen? Some of you struggle with a big decision. And you have to ask yourself the question, do I do what is right or do I do what is easy? Which voice will win out? The voice of God's truth or the voice of the mob? At some point, my friend, you have to decide, will my life be guided by principle or will my life be guided by popularity? Will I build my life on the unchangeable truths of God like the wise man or will I build my life on the shifting sands of human opinion like the foolish man? When you build your life on the sand, it looks like the life built on the rock. They have similarities in all ways until the storm comes in. And then the life that is built on the sand falls apart. 
But the life that is built on the foundation of God's word and the foundation of who God is stands firm. And at some point, each of us in this room have to decide, what do I believe about Jesus? Do I believe that he's the son of God? My savior? My Lord? What is it that you believe about Jesus? C.S. Lewis dealt with this issue. He talked about how a lot of people want to cast Jesus as a good teacher, a good moralist, and kind of leave it at that because they don't want to offend their Christian friends. Yet Lewis drilled down and he said, really, when it comes to Jesus, you have three choices. Jesus is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. That because of what Jesus said, his very words where he claims to be the Son of God and the various things that he claims about himself, uh, if he isn't that, then he was a liar. And are liars and deceivers and people who, you know, wear a mask all the time, are they really good people and good moralists? Lewis says no. And so if you don't believe Jesus to be the Son of God and you just believe that he was a teacher, then you ultimately are concluding that he was a liar. Or you say, well, I don't want to call Jesus a liar. That's kind of harsh. Maybe, maybe, well, Lewis says, well, you can also call him a lunatic. He was just crazy. He thought he, he thought he could heal the blind. He thought he could walk on water. He thought he was the Son of God. He thought he was the Messiah. And he was just crazy, and eventually everything caught up with him. Or Lewis says, you can call him Lord. That he really is the Son of God. That he really is the one who died for our sins. That he is the one who rose again. But at some point, because of who Jesus is, you have to come face to face with him yourself. You can't give the decision to somebody else. You can't compromise. You can't, you can't ignore it. At some point, it's such a big deal, you have to decide. And so I ask you this, what is it that you believe about Jesus? I'll tell you what I believe. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. He died on the cross for my sins. And he overcame death. And he invited me to believe in him and to place my faith in him. And whenever I do, I find forgiveness for my past, purpose for my present, and hope for my future. Jesus Christ is my Savior and my Lord. What is it that you believe about him? Would you be so kind as to bow your heads with me, please? We come to a time of commitment. The band's going to come. And it might be that today is the day that you need to make your decision to place your faith in Jesus Say, Lash, I don't know what to say. I, I don't know what to do. How do I place my faith in Jesus? Well, just call out to Jesus from the sincerity of your heart. There is no magical prayer or set of words that you're supposed to say. But God does call us to bring ourselves to Him. And so you might say something like this, Heavenly Father, I'm a sinner, and I ask forgiveness for that. I acknowledge that I am not you. And Lord, this moment, at this moment in this church, I am placing my faith in Jesus and I'm trusting in Him as my Savior, as my Lord, and I'm asking You to make this my moment of salvation. God, I open my heart to You and I pray that You might change my life and change my soul so that I can be the person You created me to be and live with you forever. Father, may this be my moment of salvation. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you out. But if this was your moment when you gave your heart to Christ, I would like to know. So our heads are bowed around the room. And, but if this was your moment, would you just look up at me until I make eye contact with you? 
Would you just look up at me and let me make eye contact with you? This was my moment, Lash, when I trusted in Christ. Father, as we pray before you, I know that in our lives there are some big things. There's decisions and crises and challenges that we're facing, some that we don't even tell people about. But I pray that you might give us wisdom. Help us, Lord, to be men and women of principle, that live our lives according to the unchangeable truths of your word. Help us, Father, as we live for principle, that we may also be loving, that we might care about people. I pray, Father, that you will give us the opportunity to see people come alive in Christ and have every area of their life changed through the power of the gospel. And I pray, Father, for wisdom, because I know that in some people's lives right now there's great challenge. May you give them wisdom. May you give them courage. May you give them direction to follow you and honor you in all that we do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Love you guys. Let's stand together. Let's sing.